my finest of friends. Welcome to another special Rahalastapa. This is not a retro Rahalastapa. This is not quite a Rahalastapa. This is another bit of content from uh, me being out and about and doing various events. And once again features uh, the fantastic Robin Ince, who you may have heard me talking to at the Slapstick Festival from Bristol. This comes from a Morecambe and Wise celebration in Harpenden at the Eric Morecambe Theatre or Centre. Um, which is a new uh, venue there in Harpenden. And they asked Robin Dan to talk about Morecambe and Wise from a writer's perspective. And uh, he asked me to come down and talk about it as well. Um, so it's a, there's a slightly weird thing that happens in the middle of this where we get moved to a different venue. Uh, we'll explain that as it comes. Um, and then we decided to do, uh, as we had to explain that, we decided to do a little bit more talk about our own double acts at the end. So it's a kind of bumper podcast where we talk about Morecambe and Wise. The clips uh, that we talk about have been taken out, but you can probably work out what they are. Uh, and then there'll be a bit where we explain why we're moving venues. It's very exciting. And then <laughs> there'll be a bit at the end where me and uh, uh, Robin talk about uh, our own double acts. Um, and we are carrying on with the book club, which will return next week, where I'm talking to Robin Ince about his fantastic book, The Importance of Being Interested. Uh, the importance of being earnest, I nearly said that, which would be insane. The importance of being interested. So uh, do tune in next week for that. And hopefully we'll be doing more book clubs on Fridays, along with the occasional retro Rahalastapa. Let's sit back, relax and enjoy this lovely... Come and see us live at shane.com slash gigs and enjoy this lovely bonus podcast with the fantastic Robin Inn. Hello. Welcome back, everyone, and, and to uh, new people as well. Such a pleasure to, to welcome our special guests to session two, Robin Ince and Richard Herring. And uh, I, have, I cannot uh, ignore the fact that one of our other guests that was so keen to do this and was full of it and loads of stories and I spent a lot of time on the phone with him talking about it, who really, really, really wanted to be here, died the day before we released all the information, and that was Barry Cryer. Um, with exquisite timing, of course. <laughs> Bless him. Um, but uh, I wanted to share that with you because, uh, yeah, it was uh, such a shame. And, of course, Barry uh, wrote for Morgan & Wise. Um, but... That is such an interesting thing about Barry, which is because I, I was doing the Slapstick Festival that weekend that Barry was meant to be doing as well. And... I kind of wasn't surprised when I got the call that Barry had died, you know, because, I mean, a remarkable man, and, you know, smoking and drinking and carousing, just brilliant. But the thing that I found interesting was, so when Timber Taylor died, I remember having quite a the kind of visceral feeling. With Barry, I was like, oh, that's really sad. But, but then I take the train line that goes past the house where he lived, which is very close to just around Hatch End. And every time I go past, the moment I suddenly have this strange feeling of going... Barry's not in his kitchen doing jokes. And he really has left a joke vacuum. Because any, I'm sure many of you know that he would just ring up any excuse he would find to ring someone up. He would go straight into the joke. And once the jokes rang out, bye. That was it. It was just, that was to live for the jokes. Uh, just yeah. wonderful. Well, one of, one of his jokes, and uh, I, it, it I was reminded of this when I was thinking about what we, what we might talk about, was he always said that you should never... Um, uh, analyze comedy because it's like dissecting a frog it's boring and the frog is still dead at the end and it, it uh, and of course he would have done that in a, in a funny way but uh, he, he the uh, it the reason I was so keen and so thrilled that you you do this is because I am really interested in the comedian's view of Morgan and Wise and one of the things we talked about in the first session was why they are still funny now one of the reasons I think we we were talking about was that they weren't Current. They weren't about current events. They didn't. They weren't edgy, in that sense. They weren't reflecting stuff outside. Well, that's the first relief, because of course most stuff that is cutting edge, a lot of it does not last. So if you try and watch Python with, I mean, I'm actually a little bit too young for the TV series of Python. I love the films, but I'm not as much in love with with this. For me, it would have been the young ones. But if I show the young ones to my 14 year old son, he kind of likes it. 
But he doesn't have that effect because they were revolutionary. Whereas Morecambe and Wise, I think, what you have there is you have a quite brilliant double act, which exists, you know, you could have seen that double act, probably there are Greek plays, which would have played around the same thing. But they also have a double act which is not like, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know if you've ever, sometimes Talking Pictures shows old episodes of Live Sunday Night at the Palladium, and you just go, oh my God. God, you know, this is, and it reminds you. In fact, there was a time, there's that great line, but you know, Eric was once asked, you know, what, what would you have been if you hadn't been gone into comedy, Mike and Bernie Winters? And <laughs> I, and I just remember, I, I, I was watching Talking Pictures one weekend, my, my, my wife was in the other room, and I suddenly just went, oh, for God's sake! And she went, what is it? And I said, this is the third repeat where Mike and Bernie Winters are on, <laughs> and Mike's playing his bloody oboe again. And it's like, and when you watch a double act like that, and then you watch Morecambe and Wise, you go, I mean, there's so many different levels here of, we were talking about this on the phone the other day, which is when you try and work out their relationship, because there's lots of acts which are kind of, I'm going to sing my song. I'm going to do some funny voices. Oh, let me sing my song. No, I'm just, but they don't have that. They have so many different levels. You know, Ernie, as I was saying, I was watching this morning a sketch from Two of a Kind, where they're both, they're playing two birds. Eric is in a nest and he's, he's hungry, but he can't leave the eggs. And then Ernie, at one point, just does this crazy dance and gets a big laugh. And Eric goes, the straight man's not meant to get laughs like that. And that's the thing, though. Ernie wasn't a straight man in, in a way that a lot of the more stereotypical. In fact, I would say a, a similar thing is, when you, I was not a fan of Cannon and Ball, but now when I look back at Cannon and Ball, they did have a proper double act. Bobby was this really insane thing. And then you watch Little and Large, and Little and Large isn't, like, it, it's a, a very odd, whereas, and, and I think Morecambe Wise are the pinnacle of that bit where you go, oh, now Ernie's the fun, no, but Eric's still, so Eric, they, it's not just smart and stupid, because a typical double act, I would say, you kind of go, one of them's an idiot that knows they're an idiot, and the other one thinks they're smart. But the, this one changes all the time. You know, you watch the beginning of the Christmas special, where I'm sure you might have seen it. Ernie comes out and he's wearing flares and he's got a great big hat and he's kind of got a great big fur coat. And he's going, this is going to be a really swinging gig. This is going to be so cool. And he's doing this whole thing like Carnaby Street. And Eric just comes on and looks at him while he's dancing. And Ernie is the funny thing there, but also Eric is the, they are both. And I, and I think that it's really hard to put your, your, your finger on that. Yes, it is. I think the, what the, the, my sort of theory about comedy is that, um, you know, if, you, if everyone loves a comedian, they must be doing something wrong because, you know, most comedians rub someone up the wrong way or they're too broad. But Morecambe and Wise sort of disprove that because I, I don't know, we're not going to find anyone in this room, but uh, <laughs> you've come to see this. But I, I think there's very, very few people who go, oh, God, I hate Morecambe and Wise. So you know, and and pretty much everyone loves them. So they for somehow, and that's the that's the golden egg that you can't quite get to as to what exactly why it is. Somehow they were this universal force. I think as a double act, when I was I was in double act in my twenties, which and uh, you know, and even then I think we were aware that it would be much funnier if we were sick fifty or sixty, you know, because it because it's two. I think just two young men bickering is not as funny as two old men who've known each other that long, and they were sort of that comfortable with each other. I presume they were, you know, you never know with double acts, but I presume they were pretty friendly, and they loved each other, you know, and I think that sort of comes through. But it's that, it's the comfortable relationship they have where they're able to, you know, pick at, pick at each other. Well, the thing I, the really thing I love about Morecambe and Wise is if uh, anyone else has a go at Ernie Wise, Morecambe becomes very protective of it. Yeah, we talked about and, that. And, and that is, that's the beauty of it, and I think that was the, that was the lesson I sort of took away from when watching. I, you know, I loved them as a kid, and, and it was it's sort of that occasion, though, wasn't it? And you could never get that again, I don't think, in the modern world. Well, and actually, one of the things that really struck me when I was talking to other people uh, about this event, uh, when I was starting to formulate it, um, because I have young children, I spend a lot of time hanging out with people who are a lot younger than I am, um, who've also got children the same age. And because Eric died nearly 40 years ago, they are not as connected no. uh, with, with Morecambe Wise as I think we are, mm. and anyone older, is where it just seems to me that they're part of life in this country. I can't imagine anyone not knowing who Morecambe Wise are, but there isn't the connection now. But with, with comedians, I wonder whether, because so many comedians are also 
they, they love the history of comedy as, as much as anything within their lives. That they are always going to be a part of a comedian's. Well, it's sort of, of armor. the process, and I think you know, Morecambe Wise's influence is like I mean, just uh, Vic Reeves is a, is sort of yeah. is it would be enough, you know? But Vic Reeves is is very influenced by Eric Morecambe, which you can see if you. But I think a lot of us are, and, you know, and I think it, it was always there, and, and because it was this special time when 20, 30 million people would watch a TV show, everyone in the country was basically watching the same TV show, yeah. and there was only two channels or three channels, and so it was this, this big event. I think it's got to have that impact, but because you could watch, you were watching it with your, part of it is you look back and you go, I was watching that with my granddad, and he was laughing, and I was laughing, and my granddad's been dead for, you know, 30, 40 years, so it's, it takes you back to that as much as anything, but it is... I mean, I, was, I had uh, a Paul Chuckle from the Chuckle Brothers on, on my podcast this last week. But, you wow. know, but exactly. But, you know, that's a double act. But you watch it and you kind of go, these guys absolutely knew what they were doing, right? And, you, and, you, and actually, it's very technically brilliant in there. And that relationship is very interesting. But that old way of doing stuff, that music hall and what came subsequently, those guys would work every night for decades before they really got anywhere. Or if they did, you know, I think Morgan Wise got somewhere and then didn't get anywhere, and then it went wrong for them, didn't it? and then they came back together again. They would, they would do so much work, they would get so good at it, that, uh, and, and, and that kind of variety was still on TV, it would work on TV in the 70s, and it wouldn't really work. I don't know, I it think it reinvents wouldn't, wouldn't itself, be on you then. said. The, uh, I think it still does work. Just, I mean, there aren't that... Who are the double acts now? That's, uh, you know, people say Anton Deck, but they're not. They're two TV presenters who do stuff. I, I totally, I, I don't like it when they get kind of compared. And I, I know Eddie Braben actually worked with him, didn't he, at one point. But, but I think it's what you said earlier as well, Rich, which is that thing about love, which is something, as you know, you know, trying to define love is a very, very hard thing. You know, if, if you're in a relationship, so says, why do you love me? It's very rarely can you just go, I've got this list that I've made. It's not, and that's the thing, when you watch Laurel and Hardy, Again, one of the reasons I think they still work and they're getting shown on the TV again, which I'm very glad. And I know a lot of young people really enjoy watching Laurel and Hardy as well. Um, they have that love, which means that they survive in a way that other double acts didn't survive. And I think, you know, if you look at most of the double acts of the 60s and 70s, they don't really survive over time because there isn't that extra bit of humanity. That's what, that, that, that you know, watching one of my favourite scenes, I know you haven't got the clip, uh, so just imagine... There we are. So that was that. That is, but that's the, the it, it's when Ernie's just having a bath and he's wearing a great big floral bonnet and there's a knock at the door. Who's that? Sophia Loren, let me come and scrub your back. And, uh, and then they just have this chat in the bath and it's so nonchalant in the way that it's done. And it is that thing which just, you know, it, it means that all of the kind of, you know, the, 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 the parameters of, of the way you went to, have, have, have disappeared. This are just two people, this is the life they live. Um, when I asked you what clips you'd like to have, one of the, the first ones you, you mentioned was the Beatles um, appearing on their show in 1963. Why, why did you want to, to see that one? Well, it's because I think it has, it's the level of play. I mean, we were talking about this before we came on, didn't we? You watch some clips, and even if you think it has been scripted every moment, there is always, again, this is something that can't be faked. You can, it's like the smile, you know that thing, there's, a, there's actually a bit of science there behind it, which is the reason that people hate smiling on camera is there are muscles that you are, are actually involuntary muscles. That mean when you fake a smile, you can't use the muscles that come from a real smile. In the same way, the look in the eyes of when you watch a group of people and they're all playing around and no one quite knows what's going to happen next and the laughs are coming as well. So when you watch the Beatles and you watch Eric and you watch Ernie together and you know they're playing around, there's an extra bit of kind of love and delight there, which I think is beautiful. Well, there's certainly a lot of improvisation, as it turns out, in this, in this clip. This is right at the end of the show, actually. It's just a small uh, sample of it. But, uh, yeah, here's the Beatles from 1963. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, that, the first thing you see that is, again, is, is real character. That's, you know, th this I think is something which is, they are so many, uh, just stand-ups generally, but also double well. it's kind of, you know, it's feed, it's punchline, it's feed, it's punchline. But that's about, that, that, that is three-dimensional, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that, I mean, and Ernie always got kind of short shrift, I think, and unfairly, because he's just such a huge part of it. And, he, and he's very funny, I think some of the other clips you'll see as well, but he's very funny in it, and, but also there is a comic character there it's much more than, you know, I think with, it's like you say, little and large, it's basically, 
you know, Sid Little's almost there just to give Eddie larger breath from doing his, <laughs> doing his impressions. Well, there is an amazing... The, the, <laughs> there's them, I think, on something like Live from Her Majesty's, yeah. where Sid walks on with his guitar, Eddie walks on and goes, what do you have that for? And he goes, to fry an egg. And then he doesn't say anything else. for the re Literally, the rest of it is... <laughs> Then Eddie does five minutes of impressions and then they go, good night, folks. It's the strangest yeah. double act in terms of... Yeah. So, you know, but I think a double act is about finding that balance. And I've done a few different ones and it's obviously about status and, and I've been the lowest status character and the highest status character. Hang on, hang on. So who... who well, in, I think like... In whose were you the lowest? Well, well, I think like with Lee and Herring, it, uh, Stuart was kind of the, the, the sort of cool you know, trying, trying to be cool outside, of, you know, inside of trying to get out and I was outside of trying to get in and I was the, you know, knockabout idiot. Uh, and, and Collins and Herring, which we did a, as a podcast, I was much more the aggressor and <laughs> unpleasant sort of bully. So I think in, in Lee and Herring, I, Stu bullied me and I bullied Pete, who was uh, Peter Bainham, uh, who has now gone on to be a massive <laughs> Hollywood writer. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, so I think that, that, those statuses is what it's all about. It's sort of waiting for Godot, isn't it? And it's... You know, it's it's it pots so unlucky coming in and the the bullying nature of that and uh, but this there's you know there's a little bit of bullying in Morecambe and Wise but not but it's so lighthearted and nice and as as you say as we said Morecambe steps back if it gets too much he <laughs> kind of steps in and stops it from other people so it's well it is also that thing as you said which is they have to live together they have to be together. You know, that, that, that thing, as you, when you were talking before about the scenes sometimes when someone else comes in yeah. and starts to, to, to bully Ern and, and Eric starts... No, and, that, and, that and that's a very real thing that we see in, in, in real life. So, isn't it? People who will banter and belittle you. But if anyone else comes in, they go, no, 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 you haven't realised, I do it with love. Yeah. And I think that, you know, and Ernie, of course, you know, as, as Louis wrote a lot about in his book and people know, you know, that he really did, you know, what was he going to do afterwards because he didn't want to do anything. He didn't want to be half of, of, of something. And I think in some ways, unfortunately, the way that he was written about afterwards meant that people t turned him into something lesser. And I really think you can't... You try and imagine other... You know, if you take the normal put straight man, and again, I mean that very broadly, you couldn't just go, oh, if, if, if Ern had gone first, you could imagine someone go... Because I don't think the public would have taken that either. No, you know, Eric was great Eric... going on on shows on his own, just being... That thing we're saying, there's some great crypts. When they went to the Thames, Thames obviously wanted to put them on everything. Has anyone seen them in the Sweeney? Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a whole episode of the Sweeney with Morecambe Wise playing Morecambe and Wise. And they're throughout it. Seeing, and then he's on World of Sport where he just keeps... There's a beautiful bit where Dickie Davis is there with his great big moustache. And, and Eric just comes in again as the prankster. Because that's what he's there, isn't he? He's the, you know, and, and he comes in and he just looks at the moustache and he just lifts a bit of the moustache up. <laughs> First where he says, it's real. But then, of course, the next thing he says, the last time I saw something like that on an upper lip, they had to put the whole herd down. <laughs> what an, such a beautiful line. But, but he couldn't have been that prankster. I think someone less, less well, than Ernie would not have... But yeah, I agree. I but um, what, what uh, Gary Morecambe uh, talked about in the first session was the difference between the Eric Morecambe on the screen and, and at home. And it was, it's, uh, the impression I got was only a slight difference in a sense. It's an enhanced version of him up on, up on the screen. Yeah. But I, I wanted to ask you about that as comedians because I think in order to, to find comedians funny, you have to believe in them. And that means a certain amount of disappointment often <laughs> when you meet them in real life and they're not quite like that or where, the way you see them on television. What, do, have you done that, Rich? Yeah, I mean, I create think, characters I like think, that? I think, you know, again, when we did the double act, we sort of more or less took ourselves at 18 and exaggerated in, you know, we, we've... Um, before we'd even met each other, you know, I was sort of the virginal kind of nerdy nerd character, and he was, and Stuart was much cooler. And we sort of exaggerated, but I think there's a weird thing when you start playing those characters for a long time that it cro it crosses over back and forth in life, and you sort of lose track of it a little bit as well. So you are, you know, they're clearly playing characters, and Ernie Wise especially is clearly playing this pompous character that he couldn't possibly be in real life, I suppose, because it would be, you know, he, he would. <laughs> he's had more self-awareness in real life, but uh, yeah, but you, but it's so it's this crossover, and and it is that that thing of um, uh, you were talking about Eddie Braben Kate seeing them being themselves and saying why aren't you doing this on on screen? You know, we need to write it with these characters. So you and you find that a lot with well, I was again Paul Chuckle uh, to me to you was something they just did between themselves for ages. 
and didn't ever do on screen or on stage. And then they sort of accidentally put it into, a, you know, just they were just doing it subconsciously. And people went, hey, to me, to me, to you, to them. So they hadn't even realised that was a catchphrase. And similarly, we, me and Stu used to do Moon on a Stick to each other all the time. And then so one day we went, oh, do you think we should do that in the TV show? And that became our successful catchphrase. So I think it's, it's a little bit about you're together a lot, you know, and that's, it's an unusual situation, I suppose, to be uh, to, with someone for that length of time. And so it's a weird mixture of reality and, and fictional that, that then gets a bit blurred, I think. But also, I think a lot of people forget with, and they certainly do in, in my world that I spend a lot of time in, in music, that, that it is a job, it's a profession. Yeah. Uh, and people can be surprised sometimes when you are, are, you're not quite doing the thing that they expect you to do when you're not performing. Yeah. And I, I think like famous, there was a very famous string quartet where, uh, the, who were together for a very long time. And by the end, whenever they were doing a concert, each one of them stayed in a different hotel. And they'd only meet each other on stage. And then they'd create this extraordinary music. There was something between them that worked and was perfect. Yeah. But, but they didn't need to do anything beyond that together. And I know that Eric and Ernie obviously were, were great friends off, off screen, but they didn't always spend a huge amount of time together. No. They were professionals. But sometimes you need that grit in the oyster as well. You know, sometimes a little bit of conflict between people is what creates the magic as well. Again, but it's, that's why Double S is so different. And I can never, you can never quite tell from watching them on screen which ones are the ones that hate each other in real life. But there are, there are ones that you would be surprised about who, yeah. <laughs> who hate each other and who can get together and, and do exactly that. Yeah. Do, do you want to see another clip? Should yeah. we have another yeah. clip? There's, this, this clip uh, features Scylla Black. Um, and I chose this because I, I know you wanted to have something of the two of, uh, of Morecambe and Wise together in front of the curtain. I don't yeah, think the front of the curtain. So I just love, yeah. I think, you know, I mentioned that one from 1969 Christmas special where, where Ernie's been. I mean, I do think that is, that there's a certain, we were talking about this before, but I think between about 1969 and 1974 are the real, they are, there's loads of other great stuff, but that seems to be, perhaps with the freshness of Eddie Braben as well. The first, but it's, I should mention, actually, it's important, I think, to remember that sometimes you'll read pieces which say they only really became Morecambe and Wise at that point. But actually, you watch, again, going back, you watch Two of a Kind and you will see it's nearly there. It did take another, but, but even that, a lot of that stuff still works. It's not like you go, oh, they were rubbish. And in fact, I mean, Louis mentions in his book, you know, that, that terrible review they got with that, that that shows actually it's not a disaster. It's not nearly, it's, it's a, because I think sometimes there are comics that are really bad. And unfortunately, they've read pieces that say that Morecambe Wise were rubbish and Eddie Izzard was terrible for 20 years or whatever. And they think, maybe it'll happen to me. But actually, most of those people were quite good for a long time. So it's basically, you know, if you have been rubbish for three years, stop. <laughs> right, cue. <Q. laughs> I mean, the, the thing that comes across the most is warmth. It's just sheer warmth, isn't it? it, it well, it's also, if you look at where a lot of the laughs are, I mean, that's the genius of Eddie Braben working with as well, which is, it's not, if you saw that on a piece of paper, <laughs> it would be much harder to work out. You know, some scripts you can look and you go, there's the gag, there's the gag, there's the gag. And it's that beauty of also that bit where you go, and here is the space where this will happen. And, and it, so that on the page... I think people, you wouldn't be able to judge anything about it. No, it's, well, it's interesting because I was watching a few clips this morning and I saw one from the ITV days with Leonard Rossiter and it just didn't work at all. And it's the same sort of thing, both the front of the curtain thing, there was just, Leonard Rossiter was just the wrong energy, but the actual thing was them just singing the Andrew sisters, miming to the Andrew sisters. It just wasn't, it didn't, it didn't zing. And it's, so it's that, it's, you know, maybe it's the writer, you know, saying this is what's got to happen or maybe it's just something in the timing of, you know, the 70s or whatever, the 60s and 70s, they really hit their stride. Well, it's so, you know, the, it, it can be the same people and the same idea, and it just doesn't... But also, Leonard Rostar, I'd imagine, would have been because he was a very, I mean, a genius, yeah, but extremely difficult. You know, there's a fantastic book about all of the work he didn't play, but very, very... Whereas, and, and I think there are certain people you see them playing off like the one of the things I know we haven't got it but it's a clip I would love to have shown is when Peter Cushing would turn up to say I've still not been paid and Peter Cushing the way that he 
there's a beautiful manner to him, and you know, and and there's just you know, first of all, the play, that wonderful. I, I forget which was where where Ernie's Merlin, which is is, but then the fact that you know Peter Cushing would just pop back every now and again, just say, yeah. still not being paid, and 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 it is just he knew. I wonder with Leonard Rosto, it's that thing of going, this, am I gonna? Where's my laugh? Yeah, yeah. I think it was the, the energy was wrong, and with that you see with Silla, the yeah, and the Beatles, they're all laughing, they're all in, they're in the, on the joke. Uh, and and some are, you know, so it's an interesting double act because it's a double act, but it absolutely encompasses other people coming in the middle and that working as long as they work with it. But it's that's that's the sort of fragile magic of it that I think it can just, you know, not everything that Morgan Wise did worked, but but so much of it did. And the the hit rate of that, I think those Christmas shows is, and it's still astonishing. You watch them and they're still, you know, that's just it is. The warmth is just joyful, but they feel like family members, and I think, it, again, that might just be partly due to how much it meant within our own families as we watched that 50 the, years ago. The 1971 <coughs> Christmas special, which has three absolute crackers in a row. It's uh, Greek Piano Concerto by Grieg. It's um, Shirley Bassey, It's Boat Gets In Your Eyes, and Glenda Jackson. Uh, I, mean, it's ex I mean, I wanted to bring up Eddie Braben's... The pressure on Eddie Braben, There's a, he used to talk about the blank piece of paper, you talked about his piece of paper, the blank piece of paper. He's sitting there in his room, in his room with a blank piece of paper thinking, now what am I going to do to entertain over 20 million people now? He's got to start from somewhere and he had his little t shape of his TV on the, on the wall to imagine how it was going to work. You must appreciate that kind of pressure when you're creating from nothing. Well, it is. It's a horrible thing, isn't it? Which is the the, the as, and that excellent play that was done with Stephen Tomkinson as well, playing Eddie Braben. Which is, you know, the the agony as Spike Milligan went through as well. All of that laughter while someone is going through the horror of of trying to create laughter for other people. Uh, at that, I mean, that 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 is the worst. And then sitting there at home where you've lost, or you don't have any more control. It's Christmas Day and it's going out, and you go, "Oh, hang on a minute, that doesn't quite work." Well, I can't do anything about it. I think that's why stand-up is so much fun, isn't it? Is stand-up is whatever errors you can. Everything is happening now at that moment. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's a, a remarkable. I mean, I think that's what Bar going back to Barry and thinking about the way that he was as a writer. I think again when we were talking about love and the importance of that. In fact, there's a lovely story. He used to do a double act with Willie Rushton, Two Old Farts in the Night, which I've realised I think both of us are now older than they were when they used to do that <laughs> in the Edinburgh Festival. And uh, and one night Willie Rushton said to him, "Do you know what tonight, Barry? You weren't in love with the jokes." And he says the only night he remembers it happening. He said, but he just delivered the gags. And Willie Rushton noticed. He said, I never made that mistake again. And anyone here, I'm sure many of you saw Barry live. And when you see Barry, you know, in, in, in his mid-80s there, very often with, you know, Tony Demure, Ronnie Golden, you, it's still the, the excitement. As I said, the excitement. And I think that is, again, what Eddie, Eddie Braben in, in a different, you know, that, that's what to have to just go, this is going to be beautiful and this is going to be wonderful, but how many failures must there be? I would love to know, in those moments when they work with celebrities, how many rehearsals there were. Like, you know, there's always little things you see, like when you watch Nina from Nina and Frederick when they're doing the, the it's a Banana Boat song, isn't it? And there's loads of bits where she's cracking up. You think, well, they've done a couple of rehearsals. How many things did Eric already have in his mind that he thought, I'm not going to do it till the audience is there? Yeah. How many times is it just that the repetition of the way that he'll suddenly go at someone means that it's always going to be funny? Well, well they were also were, the, they were pretty much the first people to really make a big thing of that celebrity. And, they, and, and that's it. They didn't. It wasn't just let's chuck, chuck on a couple of silly hats and see what happens. It was, like, very carefully worked out. And I think that... I can't imagine what it's like writing, having to sit down and write a show that's already that popular and you know you've got to, you know, at least equal last year. Mm. That was, you know, but, but that terror of when you're sitting down to write. I used to do a weekly podcast sketch show that I wrote every week and it would usually get to the day before and I'd have nothing and it would be just cold. You'd be, feel sick and that was going out to a few thousand people. But, you, but that in itself was enough to... To somehow get I me mean, now. That's the thing, isn't it? I think ultimately that that fear of having nothing and, and looking like a fool, or you know, as a writer, well, I think or it's or one of the reasons that, that, that's yeah. what that's what creates comedy. I think you've just got to. It's, we've got to get something. But when you, you know, I mean, it's, it is. It must be amazing to have written for those two. Well, that's and why just, we've both written. I mean, Rich and me now have both been going thirty years and very specifically written things which are generally quite unpopular yeah. because we just don't like the pressure. You know, it's absolutely. No oh, we could easily write like Eddie Braben or Barry Cryer, but what a lot of pressure! Let's just write this shabby old nonsense. If you start, if you start bad, 
then you don't have to go much yeah, better yeah, to be yeah, better yeah. the next year. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Rich just heard your new podcast. <laughs> the average, wasn't it? <laughs> so I'm glad you... Yeah. Just wait to 20 years. But it's, I mean, actually, that pressure, because I know, you know, both of it's that thing, and, and your podcast is hugely popular, it's been very successful, and, and rightfully so, but it is... Because even doing something like my double act, which I have at the moment, which is an odd double act, is that I have a double act with a, a theoretical physicist. <laughs> and that is, but that is, when we, when we play things like Margate Winter Gardens, it really does get very close to being a, a, like an old style double act where Brian will be there kind of going, so I'm going to explain why the universe, well, stop doing your voice and I'll come on and talk about <laughs> Brian Blessed or whatever. And it, it has that dynamic. But I worry, we've just started doing a new series and, when, and we have a very light script. Most of it is improvised. But every single one, I, I know that, you know, even with that kind of popularity, I'm like, I'm terrified of it not being as good as the, as the weeks before or the series before. Yeah. And that terror is really important, though. The terror because is important. Because anyone who's the... not got that terror, yeah. they don't care anymore. So it's, care, it's the terror and the fact that you care enough. Because if you, if you don't have either of those things, if you don't care, then you won't get scared anyway. And the, and the terror, you know, so that, it's exactly that. And it's so weird to hear that even Barry went through that. I think most comedians will go through, like, a time, a period of time where they're going, what's the you know, where you ru rush through it. There's certainly gigs I've done where you're rushing through the second half because you think they haven't got the first half, I might as well just do it as quickly as I can. And you sort of realise that's the exact wrong thing to do. You've got to love it and you've got to perform for the one person who's enjoying it. I look at the audience now going, oh, that's why he did 25 minutes when he played the halls in Harpenden. <laughs> I've the, done uh, a few in Harpenden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, lo I love it. He does a very slow first half and then normally we're out 10 minutes after the interval. It's great. Um, Doing a podcast is interesting because there are no rules to podcasts. There's no yeah. timing rules either. Whereas all of these shows, of course, created under quite strict rules in the end of what you can show and also, of course, timing. I mean, yeah. you, 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 sometimes you don't really know how long a sketch is going to be because of the way it just, the rhythm of it when, it's, when you actually start doing it with an audience. So yeah. it can be difficult, can't it? Yeah, well, what was interesting, by the way, was noticing uh, a lot of the, the regular shows, not the Christmas specials, were 45 minutes long. Right. No television show is 45 minutes long anymore, is it really? I don't think. Everything's an hour. Or... It's usually half an hour squeezed well, no, into actually, an hour. There's some it? other difficult ones, like in America, where sitcoms are very often 21 minutes long, yeah. which is a very difficult... Like, everybody, everybody hates... Uh, what was that one that everybody hates? Chris or everyone no, Chris. Loves everyone, everyone, everyone hates Chris. Yeah. It was an incredible most. I've just suddenly realised you've got loads of clips that we've not seen and we should probably see bed scene with uh, the because that that is should we have a quick look at that? Because I've suddenly realised we've only got like fifteen minutes That's left, right. haven't we? So we can, we can... Oh, oh, there's that one, uh, but we can go straight to... a second of each one. Everyone, yeah. Everyone's seen them all, they'll remember. That's pretty much all you need to see, yeah. isn't it, for that gag? Uh, yes, I've got that one. Here we go. See, that's got that, that brilliant thing where about three times that sketch where Ernie says something, the audience laugh because they know yeah. Eric's going to... But that pause, that little dinky pause is perfect, isn't it? So they've, they've got... The way they've managed to get bigger laughs out of both those things... <laughs> it almost feels like he's not going to bother doing the punchline and then he yeah, does yeah, it. Yeah, so like, and you're watching you've his face it. all the time going, I'm he's taking it. it in. Is he going to... Isn't he? Is he? Is he? Isn't he? <laughs> But I wonder often with lines, I mean, it's just so famous now, the, the ice cream one. It... Oh. Uh, right, a strange, it's me, Richard Herring here. Uh, a strange thing, an unusual thing happened at this point in the proceedings. Um, we'd been recording in like, uh, we'd been moved, uh, me and Robin, to a uh, conference room because not enough people had bought tickets to see us in the in the main venue. So we had the, the audience were right in front of us and a lady stopped us to say that um, the lady next to her had uh, collapsed. Uh, and indeed we we looked and saw this lady in the front row sort of head back, mouth agape and looking like she was dead. And how do, do you remember, do you remember that Robin? We're a couple of yeah, weeks. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, um, yeah, it was quite an interesting thing because it did, because we obviously, it shows you how little attention we ever pay to the audience, which is perhaps <laughs> why we've never actually learned that we don't even notice when our audience are potentially dead. And, and, and I think, you know, if we'd noticed things like that over the last 30 years, our career might have gone a lot better because we'd have been more reactive to yeah. utter silence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're meant to be observing things, aren't we? We're meant to be observing. That's what the good comedians are, the observational ones. We, we did not observe a woman literally in front of us, apparently. Oh, where dying. are you from? Hell. <laughs> oh, my God. We've got, I was just trying to do a little bit of banter. I thought you were going to say Peter, but no, I mean hell. 
hell. <laughs> but, the one uh, so that we... worried me, actually, was so, so this woman was, as you said, she was lying there with, 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 or, or, or sitting there, mouth agape, and that kind of really awkward, you know, when someone's totally, like, their, their neck, almost yeah. like their, their head's about to kind of drop off. And, uh, and it, yeah, it was quite, it was an interesting, because then once it all started... I mean, afterwards, there was a thing where Angela Rippon said she'd done a live chat show and someone had said, uh, and, and someone said, I think this woman in the front rows died. And I think it was Faith Brown, she said, was there. Yes, right. So ev everyone's a little bit thrown by this scenario. <laughs> and she said, well, fortunately, Faith Brown kind of just made it a lot easier by she pretended to be Margaret Thatcher. And I remember thinking, imagine if you were dying and you were trying to hold on and then suddenly you heard Margaret Thatcher and you went, oh, brilliant, and I'm going to hell as well. Come in, come in. General Pinochet's here as well. I thought it sounded absolutely terrifying. If I if I am dying, please don't anyone think. I think what he wanted when he was dying was to have uh, a Margaret Thatcher impersonator. Um, and John Coulshaw's going to do Boris Johnson. I do not want that as I'm dying. No. So luckily, it was it all turned out right. It was a kind of it was in Harpenden, and it was a, I would say it was an elderly audience on the whole. Not not entirely, but obviously. More I don't think that was just down to it being in Harpenden. I think no. it also being a Sunday afternoon event about Morecambe and Wise yeah. Yeah. meant we didn't have as many. Of course, normally we have a lot of of young people there. <laughs> normally, you and me, Rich, our gigs. People are just skateboarding in, you know, in their cycling shorts. But no, this was uh, yeah, it was a little bit older. But, uh, but I have also noticed. Sorry. I'd, I'd noticed the man uh, in the third row fell asleep within the first five minutes. So, you know, I, when, when she said it, I, I initially thought, oh, well, it's just another sleeping old person who's coming from the, from the cold to, to escape this stuff. Go on, what are you going to say? No, it's gonna, no, I can see that. An old man going, I'm going to save my energy for when Angela Rippon's on, I think. These two boring old men. Um, no, I just, it was interesting. I don't know if you heard that apparently she died again in a later uh, event as well. Right, did she? Because because she was in the front row yeah, for, uh, for for the, the where, when she got, and then someone said oh yeah later on in the day I think when Parkinson was saying and when I first had more wise on uh, uh, the, uh, they went I think she's died <laughs> oh not again <laughs> and uh, and then she so she just she's just one of those very deep sleepers who sleeps yeah. like a kind of uh, a frog that lives in the Arctic and loses all trace of life during her period of, she's probably hibernating she's probably only just come out of hibernation in Harpenden. <laughs> <laughs> and she's still going back and forth a bit. Well, look, by the end of our event, she was okay. So we she, we stopped proceedings uh, just in case it was uh, bad news and also to give uh, the emergency service, if necessary, a chance to get in. Uh, and the decision was made to have a sort of 20-minute break and then we would go into the main room where we should have been, Robin. So yeah, this we should explain. have been. We were on fire. We were on fire. Uh, and, uh, and do our last 10 minutes and then they would carry on with the programme with the big stars of Angela Rippon. It was very delighted to meet Angela Rippon, I have to say, looks incredibly good. She's 78, I think, 77 years old uh, and uh, still looks very... She looked younger than you and I, I have to say, was Parkinson looked older than you and I, which I was glad to see. He's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's 80 something, I think. Yeah, I think he's, he's about, about 85 or 86, yeah. yeah. And the same the, age uh... as my dad, yeah. So he, he, he wasn't, he didn't look quite like the memory of Michael Parkinson we have in our minds, but, uh, but Angela Rippon was pretty close, I think, to looking like Angela Rippon. So well done to Angela Rippon for her good genes. Uh, but so this, we went in and, uh, and uh, we did the last 10 minutes in the big venue with, a big, with the audience who were really... Michael Parkinson's and Andrew Rippon's audience. So, you know, quite, a, in a way, a difficult gig to come in and do the last 10 minutes in front of someone else. Uh, and, yeah, and that old lady, I, I thought I would, I'd seen her. She was sitting in the front row again. So when we were talking about it, I was looking again, giving her a little smile and a nod, and she seemed fine. I hope she does that at all the events. <laughs> I hope that's her trick. I hope she's a prankster. That everything that she goes to, at some point she thinks, I think it's meant to be about me now. Here we go. It was quite scary, you know. It's, I've had I've had a, someone faint in the audience before, and I've had drunk people. Oh, you! I used to get that all the time, Rich, when you were yeah. young. I remember. Oh, so the whole front row would be fainting. <laughs> But uh, and I've had people so drunk that they've passed out, but I haven't had somebody. I don't think anyone's died in any of my my gigs before. But anyway, the, let's. here's the last 10 minutes and then Robin and I are going to have another chat at the end uh, about uh, Double X. So here we go. Hello, everybody. Hi. Um, for those of you that ha 
I've just arrived and haven't been at the previous sessions. My name is Tommy Pierce and I'm producer of today's event, All the Right Notes, celebrating this wonderful comic, Eric Morecambe, who lived here in Harpenden, of course. Um, it's, we had a slight uh, uh, incident in the previous uh, session, unfortunately, a medical uh, uh, emergency that we had to deal with. So what we'd like to do, if you'll indulge us, we'd like to finish off the previous session. It's such a pleasure to have these uh, fantastic comedians with us uh, to discuss the work. And we've been looking at some clips as well, of course. So thank you very much, all of you, for, for coming. Really, really appreciate you being here. Uh, let me introduce you to Robin Ince and Richard Herring. So the first time I've been moved to the bigger room halfway through a gig, I have to say, it's very exciting. <laughs> Though, it's though going not so due to well. popularity, <laughs> no, yet again. So well. Why did they put you in the bigger venue? <laughs> a medical incident again. <laughs> I, I think the person is, is okay, I yes, think, as far as that, because it was one of the, we were talking about that thing that, of course, the goodies, famously, someone died from laughter, <laughs> and, uh, and, and someone went, oh, you'll be like the goodies, went, no, this very much looked like boredom. <laughs> uh, very different. Um, well, it's, it's great to have you back. Um, we, I was going to mention, just yeah. so, sorry, before we go, because we were talking before, for those of you who weren't here, we, we talked about some of the guests, and... Uh, are Morecambe Wise and just the, the brilliance of the chemistry. My, my favourite, someone who I love anyway as a, as a human, was Peter Cushing. And uh, who you will remember Peter Cushing, if you were there, used to turn up and say, I still haven't been paid. And it was this beautiful little running gag they did. And the Peter Cushing story I wanted to tell was, I watched a thing once, it's actually in his autobiography, where Peter Cushing once said, he said, when I was a little boy, if I was naughty, my mother would punish me by pretending to be dead. Which is the most incredible thing, isn't it? Just like that, and, and he said yes, and 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 I, I, it would make me very upset. And uh, and I say, oh, I'm so sorry, mummy. I'm so sorry, mummy. I promise I won't be naughty again. But of course I would. And then she'd pretend to be dead again. And she'd sing a little song about going over the sea, and then just sit very still in a chair. And um, and then one day uh, when I'd been naughty, she was being particularly dead in the chair. And. Uh, and, and my brother came in and said, don't be so silly, go on, kick her, shove her. But I couldn't. And then the next time she was being dead, I was so cross and I just put a jam sandwich right in her face and she never did it again. And I just, <laughs> it's just such a lovely, gentle, but very strange story from Peter Cushing. Um, <laughs> you must gonna... have the last week's audience, I have to yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, better, better... That's such a Brucey We've got a clip. We'll, we'll have one clip for, for the uh, end of our session. And I've chosen it because it's one of those clips with Morecambe and Wise where I think if you write it down and you look at it, it's not funny at all. It's only really funny because it's them doing it. It's with Tom Jones, and it's a very famous clip. Let's see it, and then we, we can chat about it. I mean, I can't imagine how that was really written down. It was just an idea, I suppose, but so beautifully executed. There's a lovely thing. We showed a couple of clips where you have Ernie doing sometimes that kind of almost crazy jazz dancing. And again, this, is, this underlines that thing which we were talking about before, which is, you know, sometimes Ernie's talked about as being a straight man, and he's not. He's not a straight It's far more intricate than that. And whenever he does, like the beginning of that scene, his eagerness, there is something so joyous about just he, at that point, he's the one on the cusp of insanity when it comes to dancing, just the glint in his eyes, I don't the think size you, of his you smile. Don't really look at Eric. I actually made an effort to look at Eric in that in that one, and he, he, Ernie absolutely steals complete focus. So he's, he's not he's not the straight man, funny man thing. And Ernie is. I mean, they're, they're funny together. But when when you're looking at you're looking at Ernie, aren't you? Yeah, I think. We were talking about um, contemporary comedians like yourselves, and maybe the influence or not of the, of, of Morecambe and Wise. Have they are. Is there a chance that they're uncool with some comedians because it's old comedy and therefore everyone should be looking forward and they don't... No, but that or do they, Are they beyond all of that, really? I, I, I think a lot of those... I mean, I think now there's lots of divisions with contemporary comics, amongst contemporary comics, but I think there was a point in the 1980s, after the initial kind of burst of alternative comedy, which I think really was needed as well, when you watch some of those variety shows, not this, but others, you did need... But then there was that point where people like Les Dawson would be revered and still are revered within the 80s and the 90s. And I don't think Morecambe and Wise, partly as well because they weren't political, they were never really out of favour. And, and, and I think, as you were mentioning before as well, you see their, well, you see their influence on, on, obviously, Reeves and Mortimer, but also Lee Mack, who is, of course, a huge fan of Morecambe Wise. And you watch some of his delivery of gags, and you watch him sometimes on Would I Lie to You, and, and, and there is still 
that the influence of Eric. You can still definitely see it there. Well, and Miranda Hart, you know, really, and uh, Harry Hill as well. He used to do that. Uh, he won't sell many ice creams going that fast. in a stand-up set. So you know, it, it, it's really there. And I, th I don't know. I think comedy isn't really meant to last the ages anyway occasionally things do and i think laurel and hardy is a very rare thing even from 100 years ago mm. chaplin not as much so as laurel and hardy i think morgan wise has the best shot but as we said i think it is so anchored in that in our generation and above you know we're the youngsters for, for, for morgan and wise i don't know if the young young people really know that much about them really. but if you showed it to them i think that's the thing is yeah, most it. of these names will not live on forever uh, in, in mass culture, but will still live on as influences and will still live on. You know, anyone who's read the book A Funny Way to Be a Hero by John Fisher, which is a fantastic book of, of, of chapters about many of the kind of music hall and variety acts, will know there are certain acts that you might, you might not know that well. It's like Will Hay. If you watch someone like Will Hay, Will Hay is, I think, one of the most modern of that era of comics. It still works. You, you mentioned Laurel and Hardy. The clip we were watching before we finished in the other room was of the of Morgan Wise in bed together mm -hmm. uh, for the uh, when he opens the curtains and says that he's not going to sell many ice creams going at that speed, but they're in bed together and and that is a thing in a, in a way, isn't it? And but it was Laurel and Hardy the fact that they'd done it that sold it to Morecambe and Wise from Eddie Braben's point of view, yeah. wasn't it? And it's entirely innocent, as you were saying. There's no there's no part of anyone watching. Those two have just yeah, yeah, <laughs> been yeah. rotting each other's senses, and now they have <laughs> now they're smoking their pipe. You know, you knew that it was it was a, it was a beautiful innocence to it. Which again, I don't think it would it would be there be if you did it now, it would there would it would it would be veiled in too much irony, or they would, it would be making some kind of comment. It was just you know when we watched that as kids, it was just oh they're, <laughs> they're such good friends. They you know, and it, there's an element of feeling, and it goes back to doesn't it? That which we which I did in my double act. When you're touring and you've got no money, you you know you share a bedroom as you as you're going around your digs. Me and Stuart Lee once slept in a in in two single beds, but they were joined by a pink canopy above them, <laughs> in a bed and breakfast. That was our most romantic moment. Uh, but uh, so I kind of you completely you completely get where that's come from, and it is this you know, and you watch that as a kid and just think, oh, those are two men who you know who've. Spend their whole lives together, and so they obviously. Yeah, like like the scene in when when Ernie's having a bath yeah. with his big floral bonnet on. It, it just there's nothing in in that. Let's sum up. Where do you think they they are in the in the history of comedy? What, where's their what's their place? These two. Well, I I think in terms of the history of television comedy, uh, in and, and, and you know we will have to be as proclaimed saying it is British television comedy. Uh, I think they, will, they must always be, anyone who is ever putting together a list of who has been important in television comedy, Morecambe-wise, I think they inv invented with Eddie Braben and, you know, John Junkin and, and Barry Crow, all of them working together, but, you know, Eddie Braben in particular, they invented so many things that went on to be used in other ways. And they are very much a... I think a lot of the other double acts that we were talking about before, that kind of Mike and Bernie Winter style, they are basically, they're acts that really suit the halls, but happen to be on television. I think Morecambe and Wise are very important, like, you know, and, and they will always be vital in terms of understanding the history of, of British TV comedy. And nobody will ever get their viewing figures again. So whatever happens in the history of television, they'll be right up there. I think it's also interesting watching it that pretty much every guest they have on you still go, I know who that is, and that's a really big deal. Well, like 50 years later, there's hardly anyone you watch. I mean, there's one guy in the Nothing Like a Dame, the big newsreader thing, I go, who's that one? But apart from that, everybody is like still a name. So it's, in terms of entertainment and television, it's such a huge, huge thing. And it's, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be still referred to and still watched in hundreds of years' time. Yeah, I'm certain you're right. Thank you very much, Robin. Thank you very much, Rich, for, for being here and, uh, and for putting up with the, the rather sort of disjointed nature of this session. Uh, but it's been such a pleasure. How is everyone? Have you here? We've got through this one. That's Everyone's all right. Good. good. Thank you very much. Uh, to Please uh, join me. Thank you very much, Robin and Richard. Thank you. I don't think we said... We didn't say anything that we, we said no, that didn't fear to be. No, so that's good. Um, so there we go. Because we weren't quite as overt about her dying. No, that's true. Because the order, whereas now that we know that she, <laughs> at the very least, was fine at the end of the day. 
And, and obviously, at the end of this podcast, it will say, today's podcast is in memory of that lady. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's do it. She'll die, you know, as we all will at some point. So let's make it in memory of her. She seemed like a nice, nice old bird. Um, let the, well, that was the show. You wanted to talk a bit more, because we felt it was a bit, as it was a Morecambe and Wise event, we we both felt a bit... Uh, Although we were sort of there to discuss the mechanics of comedy and how double acts work, we both felt a bit like we can't really start talking about our own double acts too much. So we thought there might be a bit more to say about double acts for this for, for this podcast version. Um, you've, you've done a few double acts, so obviously you're you're currently working with Brian Cox in in a. I mean, it, it is a, a sort of traditional double act in a, in a lot of ways, isn't it? Though it's sort of an information based one as well, in that he is. Uh, they're very clever. <laughs> there isn't usually someone so clever in a, in a double act that they're actually clever, and you're the guy who, you know, who is allowed to be a bit more stupid about stuff. Whilst... Well, it's it's a very genuine, you know, normally yeah. one of the people is pretending to be clever and the other is pretending to be stupid. Yeah. But this is one, this is very method. This is, <laughs> yes. is an utterly true double act of ignorance versus uh, cosmological wisdom. But yeah. it is, yeah, it, it's funny, is it? Because when you look at the, a double act like Morecambe Wise, which is uh, like a prop, a proper double act whereas all the kind of double acts that I've done are basically two people just talking like I'm always surprised when people will sometimes talk about the chemistry that Brian and me have because I think we're just chatting yeah, but it, it, then you realise if it is genuine, it can actually be the worst kind of double act. Is when you, you know, a lot of those ones from Summertime Seaside Special. That you, yeah, those those ones that were kind of uh, inside number nine. That wonderful one was it Chalk and Cheese that they did Bernie Clifton's dressing yeah. room, and and that had that perfect thing where you just go, there was no dynamic. And a lot of them you watch and you go, they're really trying to create a dynamic, but it is so false. And yes. I think that's why. So you get that bit, that interim period of that really false kind of end of the pier double act and then I think you know probably with I mean with you and Stu that was even that was I mean in some ways it's not really you had a kind of double act dynamic yeah I mean we did more than you said a lot of people sort of thought oh you know we're like uh, Newman and Badil but they were not because we were young people coming up and we were the next one along but they weren't really a double act at all and you know they did history today they did a sketch together but they basically didn't even stand on stage when they did live shows they would do their own bit and then they would come together and do history today and even in the show they weren't really uh, a double act and i think we, me and Stu kind of wanted although i think Stu more reluctantly you know Stu and that's pro probably why the double act worked in a way as well and that Stu was much more focused on his solo act really um, and uh, and the double act was was all I was in the when we were doing it was pretty much all I was doing so it meant a lot more to me but then that even was that even sort of became part of the relationship really and that he was above it and I was you know I, and I really needed it <laughs> and I was and I was doing all the stuff but yeah so I think we did we were we were aware of um, being a double act and wanted to do it properly and have a relationship more common wise was someone we really looked at but I think. Even just that, we were sort of slightly postmodern with it, obviously as well. In terms of, um, you know, I used to love Cannon and Ball, but 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 it's it sort of, and certainly when it started, it was it had this kind of much more uh, anarchistic kind of feel to it. You know, and Rick Mail would turn up on the Cannon and Ball show and stuff, and you could see why because there was a similar dynamic between him and Bobby Ball. Um, but it kind of. Again, I think TV can sometimes turn those things into a bit of a parody of themselves. So we we did a sketch very early on. One of our first sketches was like we we decided to form a triple act in which Stu was the straight man, um, I was the funny man, and I had I had like braces in my pocket that I would just get out and twang, but they weren't attached to my trousers. And then we had a, we had it was knife, fork, and Peterson, and there was a guy who just sat on the stage drinking beer, and that was his part. <laughs> so it was like a traditional double act, but we just had someone drinking beer on the stage with us, and he didn't do anything. Um, so we were kind of we were aware of that dynamic, but I was all you know I'm I was always fascinated by that. TV was so important to me, and that's even now when I'm doing my puppet show. It's sort of it's sort of making a nod to all of those sort of weird variety acts, I suppose, at the time. So we we, we in that double act, it was bridging that gap almost between um, alternative and mainstream. That both the both of which had sort of almost disappeared i suppose the mainstream well you, you had that kind of energy of the mainstream didn't you that's yeah. you know your your as you said your your energy your desire to please even though yeah. there was a level of irony perhaps in that 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 yeah. that still has uh, you make me think of god and jesus you remember simon yes. munnery's uh, yeah. uh, the uh 
always and, and that was that that had re- that was that was totally pared down to almost nothing as a double act wasn't it yeah. it was uh, i always remember that line uh, the other day i received a letter just addressed to masturbator London, <laughs> wonderful thing, the postal service. <laughs> and Funnily then, enough, do... uh, God or Jesus, whichever one wasn't signed Monday, was Steve Cheek, who I was at school with, and we were just in a, you know, we were in a comprehensive school in uh, Somerset, and we did sketches. Me and Steve Cheek were both obsessed with comedy, and he was much more academic. So I, I sort of almost had a double act with him, and almost was recreating that with Stuart, and that it was a similar. Uh, character of kind of this you know intellectual sort of above everything kind of person uh so I, I i wonder i sort of wonder if that's partly why I, what 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 attracted me to stuart in comedic terms when we when we met was he had this he had this sort of same air as steve cheek but it's sort of weird that out of my school uh and steve cheek is probably one of the people who has the most influence on modern comedy without being a comedian of almost everyone because i think he's an influenced simon obviously and he's influenced Stuart via me, (laughs) you know, and a a lot of the stuff that me and Stuart did when we started, we'd sort of set down rules at school about not wanting to do the obvious stuff and not wanting to do TV parodies and not wanting to do uh, sort of just sort of trite celebrity based comedy. So Steve Cheek has this influence that has, you know, spread its tendrils through so many different areas uh, without without actually being a comedian himself. But yeah, so, you know, it is, as, but, you know, I think you, you are, I, I also with doing the Rahalastapur, it's, um, it's sort of like doing a double act every show, you know, I, and I think that's, because with Andrew Collins, I was, it was, I was the high status one in the Andrew Collins, Richard Herring um, double act in that, you know, he was, he was a sort of, I think I suppose I was still the sort of funny man. I think if you if you look at them, I suppose I was the funny man in Lee and Herring, even though it wasn't. Let quite the straight audience man. decide, Rich. Let the audience <laughs> decide. Don't. Um... It was it wasn't quite straight man, funny man with Stuart, but but with with Andrew, it was much more like he was a sensible journalist. But I was the I was sort of bullying him really. Whereas was in Lee and Herring, I was I was the bullied one, I suppose. So it's sort of. And I think when we started in at university, weirdly, and there's a you know there's a very long podcast, and this is where we want to go into all the uh, all the details of why this happened. But I, you know, when we started out doing our sketch troupe, I was the I was the high status one and uh, and sarcastic one, and uh, I kind of got it beaten out of me. Through, through but it's interesting, isn't it? That world. that status thing, I think, is where a lot of where you can see the animosity, where you can see a, a double act falling apart or never yeah. really developing. And I've seen that even with scientists. I've seen it when they've sometimes gone on stage and stuff. And if one's got a bigger laugh than the other, or something, there's you can actually see on their face a bit of annoyance. And yeah. that's that that to me seems to be the most important thing in the in the relationships that I've had with the people that I've done uh, kind of double acts with is uh, you actually just enjoy being in their company and having them yeah. not and going, that's a great joke and, and enjoying that. The moment that you go, I mean, there's that famous story, isn't there, with uh, the Rat Pack, you know, the one about Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin where yeah. uh, um, Frank Snatch was annoyed. He, he said, Dean, you've got all the gags. You've got all the punchlines. I want those. Why, why, do, why do you get all the laughs? It's unfair. And so Dean Martin said, it's fine. We'll do the script the other way around then. And of course, they did the script the other way around and Dean Martin got all the laughs because <laughs> it wasn't about the lines. It was the fact yeah. that Dean Martin had, the, you know, and, and, and that bit where you go, you know, that, that, that's never going to last if you've got those kind of egos. And I can no. imagine that Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, having had such a different dynamic, it appears, as human beings as a whole. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because some double act, obviously people don't get on and we, you and I all know more of them. In the end, I sort of, you know, a bit fallen out with both. It's a very intense relationship uh, and uh, you've got to be able to see it. I mean, I, I with, with Lee and Herring, I always saw it. If we get a laugh, it's both of us getting the laugh. So like it doesn't matter yeah. who gets the laugh. The show, you, I think you've got to see a double act like that. But if if anyone has any ambitions to be kind of spiraling off on their own, uh, and we always did stuff separately anyway. So it was it wasn't quite like oh we're trapped in this thing and we have to stay together. We always knew it would it would end. But you know I think you've got when you're doing the double act, which Stuart was much more reluctant to be in the double act I think than than I was. You've got to you've got to see it as 
we have worked this together. Even if he, even if one of us was Sid Little and one of us was Eddie Large, <laughs> as I think we do discuss in the podcast, that's maybe not the best example. But uh, you know, you're both you're both working together to the end, so you you've got to see it as a team thing. And some of them work, some of them last forever. And like that's but again interesting on the podcast is you know French and Saunders just absolutely love each other, like they're absolute best friends. David Cross and. Um, Bob Oden- Odenkirk just seem to absolutely love each other, and so it's it's. It, I think that's the and, and Morecambe and Wise. I think I don't know that much about their personal relationship, but I think they the, the affection between them. I think is what makes it work. If it's if it's falsified, it's amazing. But I think you know they they spent so much and time they together. also they put. They put so much work at you. Both of them worked so hard. You know, it's really interesting reading uh, Louis Barth's book about how Ernie Wise kind of dealt with a lot of the contracts, made sure they got. You know, they were they were yeah. really putting it, it. It was it was a and that's the other problem as well, isn't it? Which is, I mean, you know, sometimes if you're in a room full of people and uh, a good joke, someone's come up with a good joke. Lots of people within a week will claim it's their joke. Oh, no, yeah. I know, I In fact, I remember once working on Meet Ricky Gervais many years ago. There was uh, Ricky Gervais, Steve Merchant, Jimmy Carr, and me. And uh, and Ricky came up with a kind of idea, uh, and then Steve took it to the next bit, and then I came up with a punchline. And then Jimmy Carr picked up his dictaphone and went, hmm, idea for joke. And we went, but, but, but hey, what on earth? <laughs> Literally the only person in the room who had not in any way donated anything to that joke. And he went, well, yeah. no, I mean, but, but, no, 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 Jimmy... All of us could now argue. Steve, Ricky, and me could say, and, and you know, quite often with Ricky, for instance, when I work with him, um, you know, I would say that that gag it'll work better for you. And yeah. I think that bit, as long as you don't start to get, um, yeah, I probably shouldn't. There's one story I <laughs> when when Jimmy Carr rang up uh, Ricky Gervais because he'd used one of his jokes on some American uh, um, late night chat show, and uh, and he went, oh, really sorry, uh, uh, Ricky, but I I accidentally used one of your jokes, and and I was going to tell them, but it got such a good reaction. So it's a lovely bit of psychology about I did your joke, which is brilliant. But anyway, this is why it's. Uh, and then Ricky rang me up, and he went, and at the end of the conversation, I suddenly realised it wasn't even mine; it was yours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's you know it, it has to. I think the minute it, it the collaboration breaks down, or the minute you know, it, and it, I, I sort of think a lot of those double acts work because because there is a tension and because there is a you know there is a problem off stage, or 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 you know it, you need a. I think some of them need a little bit of grit to make that pearl in the in the oyster. But but then equally the ones that last, I think, because it's just it's so intense. And I think especially when you're when you're young. I think it's 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 such an intense relationship, and if 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 it is involved on status, and even if you both know that you're playing characters, I think in Collins and Herring, you know, eventually Andrew Andrew sort of got it and understood it, and I think eventually started as a serious journalist started thinking, no, you're actually bullying me, and I'm actually feeling hurt by the stuff that's going on. Whereas you know, I, I absolutely, from my point of view, <laughs> there was there was never any reality. I don't think in it. Uh, on you know maybe there was a little bit I suppose you know there's a little bit of you let out your frustrations a little bit but it was but it, I thought it was a, I thought it worked well as a, a relationship but you know it sort of it fell apart for off stage reasons as well but um, you know that's uh, some things will last forty fifty years and some things will last five years and it doesn't it doesn't really uh, mean that one is sort of better than the other I think. But it's but it, it is, is but of... it's hard. You're right. That bit of where you know because there will sometimes be a kind of bullying dynamic or whatever it is yeah. in a thing. It, it's sometimes it is, and you do have to step. And I remember one time doing a show with Michael, and uh, and I realised that I just I had I'd shown off too much. Yeah, you know there was I think maybe maybe it was two or three in a row when we were playing this great really really good grubby room. It was the perfect room for us. It was kind of damp and it was red. It was far too red and it, and it wasn't that comfortable and it was the kind of right place for us to be. And I remember just showing and then actually saying, oh, "I'm really sorry, I showed off too much tonight." And, and yeah. I was and I knew that I hadn't given him space. And that bit that if if you just get led by I'm still getting a laugh, keep out my way, then you know that can be quite kind of troublesome. There needs, there needs to be an understanding, and then you know, and yeah, and you're gonna it's gonna bend and break, and egos are gonna get involved, and yeah, absolutely, you know, and of course, like, yeah, I think with Lee and Herring, Stew, Stew, because he'd done so well this stand up, you know, he always sort of patronised me about live work and everything. It was I think about eight years in, I said to him, 
listen, you've got exactly the same amount of experience as me of being in a double act. You don't know any more than me about being in a double act. Because I think he was, you know, he was he was thinking, you know, I, I my stand-up, solo stand-up, had, I, you know, I decided to stop doing it. It never really worked. So he, he, he'd suddenly become the sort of, you know, the... It, the 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 relationship had, had like changed in a way, so it's it you know you need to and yeah and, and sometimes I annoyed him by we would we'd improvise so much and sometimes I'd annoy him by pushing the boundaries too far or pushing them in the way he didn't want. Though weirdly, there was like a night we did a show together, which I think is again when people have compared me and Stu subsequently, that I think a lot of our both of our future comedy came out of where we would try and um, there'd be a part in the show where we'd try and. Uh, push uh, push things so far that the audience would get, become disgusted in it. You know, so it was me basically, and I we I would just go too far and push it and push it, and then the audience would turn, and then Stu would do something, and it would it would work in that way that I was meant to push too far. But this audience in, I think it was uh, it was wherever Pocahontas is buried. <laughs> I forget where that is now. I want right. to say Hornchurch, but it isn't Hornchurch, um, Basingstoke, or somewhere like that. Uh, they they just were egging me on to go further and further, and I had to kind of just I kept on going until I was fucking Pocahontas's skull in the eye hole and stuff, you know. And they still wanted more, and I and I think that experience and it felt like you know we, we it felt like we'd created that thing you can have with your friends sometimes where you're just pushing things as far as they could possibly go, but you would never do it in public. But we'd be, everyone had become complicit in this amazing experience of just pushing something mu- much too far. And uh, and just being thrilled by it, and I think you know when you look at say Stuart's vomiting into the anus of Christ routine, or you know similar stuff that I've done, that so much of it came out of this kind of bizarre thing where the audience became uh, a sort of entity uh, <laughs> that became part of the double. Act. So it's it's sort of it's it's all very fascinating stuff, and uh, and I guess you know I guess with Morecambe and Wise, it's just how they. You know, it it is a, a really impressive. I am slightly worried now that anyone who's been drawn to this as Morecambe and Wise fans, yeah. with no real knowledge of of of, uh, of you or I, yeah. the, where you've now taken it with the Pocahontas routine, yeah, feels. You know, I mean, I can imagine that Morecambe and Wise <laughs> in the twenty first century, maybe. They might, but have done it's it. yeah, it's going to be yeah. But we watched their double act. So today's show is in memory of all the people who died while listening to that last bit. I have shock. Entertainment should have been there, there won't be any more from Wise. They don't know what podcasts are. Uh, but yeah, hopefully they won't die. But, um, For those of you yeah, who weren't alienated earlier by the Pocahontas line, Richard Eric will now continue to alienate you. It's fascinating stuff, but let's leave it there. We, we could talk about this forever. And I want to talk to you. For next week's podcast, where I'm going to be talking to you about your book. So we'll uh, thank you, Robin, for this extra bit, and thank you for the. It was really good fun doing that, uh, doing that event as well. It's nice to meet Angela Rippon, wasn't it? <laughs>